Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 23, The Other Rasputin, The Tale of Ilyador Trufanov. The unpaved streets of the Volga city of Tsaritsyn heaved with throngs of people on the 29th of June 1911. The event was not a strike, although the town had seen plenty of these in recent years, given the urban destitution in which its rapidly increasing population lived. No, the mood was much more celebratory. The focus was on the carriage making slow progress through the city centre. Entirely covered in flowers, the vehicle was followed by girls and women belting out songs full of love for the Russian motherland. Two men sat in the carriage. One was the infamous Siberian Grigory Rasputin, hated by many for the hypnotic spell he had supposedly cast over the imperial family, but loved just as much for representing the simple virtues and piety of the Russian peasantry at the very highest level of the Tsarist regime. The other was a monk, dressed in a black cassock. Rasputin's craggy features, marked above all by his sunken, striking eyes, contrasted considerably with those of the young monastic, so delicate that some contemporaries described his face as almost angelic. This man, just as famous at the time as Rasputin, was Ilyador Trufanov, rabid Russian nationalist and virulent anti-Semite. The pair were just returning from a joint pilgrimage they had made to a nearby convent, accompanied on their steamboat by nearly 200 adoring female fans. During the trip, Ilyador had called Rasputin his brother in Christ, and indeed he had much reason to be grateful. Ilyador's career, beset by scandal despite being scarcely more than half a decade old, had been saved on several occasions by Rasputin's intervention with the emperor and empress. But, as Ilyador was to discover just over a year later, what Rasputin had made he could also destroy. Sergei Trufanov, as he was known before taking monastic vows in 1903, came from a small village along the Don River and was thus a Cossack peasant by origin. Little is known about his earliest days other than that at the age of 15 he began attending a local Russian Orthodox seminary. He was evidently an extremely successful student since he was able to enter the St. Petersburg Ecclesiastical Academy when he turned 20. This institution, the church's equivalent of a university, was extraordinarily exclusive, taking only the best of the best from the seminaries scattered across the empire. As well as a scholarly education, Trufanov undertook spiritual training, as he stated, in order to harden my spirit, at the academy I subjected myself to great privations. On one occasion I fasted three days, refusing even bread and water, and for two months I slept neither night nor day, spending the time in continuous prayers. 
Of course, these privations reacted detrimentally on my body and also on my mind, so that, emaciated physically and exalted spiritually, I saw visions, I saw Christ, I saw evil spirits that grasped me by the hair, shouting, You shall not escape from us! You shall not escape from us! And I saw monsters with immense iron forks that screamed, You are ours! You are ours! In short, I brought myself to the point of mental and physical collapse. It surprised no one then, when Trufanov became a monk in 1903, taking the name Ilyodor. After graduation from the academy in 1905, Trufanov was dispatched to join the staff of the Yaroslavl Seminary. But here he immediately began to stir the pot. 1905 was the year of failed revolution in Russia. Shaken by defeat to Japan and massive strikes, Emperor Nicholas II had been forced to make major concessions to save his throne, including the creation of an elected national parliament, the Duma. Both the revolution and the fledgling democracy it birthed marked the beginning of mass politics in Russian society, with members of all social groups and political persuasions now intent on mobilising their forces to determine Russia's future fate. This was also true of the extreme right, which had coalesced into the Union of the Russian People in October 1905. Zealously monarchist, profoundly anti-democratic, and riddled with hatred for everything foreign, especially Jews, the Union repeatedly sought out an alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church, partially because they held orthodoxy to be one of the core characteristics of the Russian nation, partially for access to the church's enormous network of priests, schools and charitable institutions, vital for swaying people to their side. In Iliador, it seemed as if they had found their man, protégé as he was of Bishop Antony Hrapavitsky, a respected prelate inclined towards the Union and its cause. Almost as soon as he arrived in Yaroslavl, Iliador penned attacks in the local press against the central Russian city's striking workers. However, Iliador quickly proved as much a liability as an asset. He publicly attacked his own boss, the rector of the Yaroslavl Seminary, for refusing to join the Union of the Russian People. Within months, this intransigence had led all of the seminary's senior students to boycott Iliador's lessons. While the Synod, the church's leading body, was increasingly tinged with pro-Union sympathies, it could not stand such an outrageous flouting of hierarchical discipline, especially when it provoked instability. They transferred Ilidor to the Novgorod Seminary. Here too, Ilidor managed to earn the ire of a local archbishop, and on this occasion had to be saved by his patron, Antony Hrapavitsky, who had the firebrand monk move to his own diocese of Volinia. However, given its high Jewish population, Volinia, situated in what is today northwestern Ukraine, was hardly an appropriate place to stick an unabashed anti-Semite. Iliador proceeded to flood the local church newspaper with hateful bile, blaming Russia's defeat in the conflict with Japan 
on a terrible conspiracy between cosmopolitan intellectuals, greedy workers and malicious Jews, all of whom should either be killed or forced from the empire. Fearful that Iliador would inspire violent massacres of the Jews of the kind that had occurred frequently in the preceding decades, the empire's prime minister, Piotr Stolypin, sought to close Iliador's newspaper, but the move was blocked by the Synod for two years. Only in 1907, when Iliador began to publicly call for the execution of Stolypin's predecessor as prime minister, Sergei von Witter, did the Synod agree to act against Iliador? By this point, even Antoni Hrapavitsky was increasingly convinced of Iliador's insanity, and so did not intervene. But again, Iliador was saved by a highly placed intercessor, this time Bishop Gomegien Dolganov of Saratov. Gomegien was possibly even more deranged than Iliador, having cut off his own genitals before becoming a monk in 1890. Comparative levels of sanity aside, both men were united in their hysterical attacks on Jews, intellectuals, nobles, landowners, businessmen, foreigners, journalists and bureaucrats, all done supposedly in the defence of the Russian peasantry. Ensconced in Tsaritsyn, where he began work constructing an enormous monastery fortress with a cathedral capable of holding up to 7,000 people, Ilidor used the printed and the spoken word to relentlessly attack eminent people in local society, leading to 53 court cases by 1911. In 1908, he managed to incite a free-for-all when Ilidor called on his supporters to defend him from the government, making national headlines. Both the Synod and Prime Minister Stolypin sought to punish him by sending him to the depths of the Belarusian countryside, but he was protected again by Bishop Gomegien, who either ignored orders or delayed replying to them. When even Gomegien was finally forced into action, banning Ilidor from preaching in March 1909, the monk took this in his stride and appealed to the highest authorities in the empire. Using his friendship with Rasputin, Ilidor met with Empress Alexandra. She persuaded her husband to overrule the Synod, with Ilidor being allowed to stay in Tsaritsyn on probation. By now the pattern was clear for everyone, including Ilidor himself. Committing crimes that would have earned most people the harshest punishments, Ilidor was able to call on powerful friends who would protect him from repercussions. Unsurprisingly emboldened, Ilidor continued to cause a ruckus in Tsaritsyn. The city council feared his agitation among railway workers would cause a strike and tried to have him removed from the city, but to no avail. Gomegien fudged the investigation demanded by the Synod. In 1910, Ilidor brutally and publicly castigated the wife of a local timber merchant for allegedly wearing a low-cut dress while singing during a charity gala. Again, both the Synod and Prime Minister Stolypin called for the severest punishment, but it was all in vain. As the British historian Simon Dixon comments in an article that serves as the main source of this episode, 
it is hard to imagine the Prime Minister of any other European great power becoming personally involved in the case of a singer offended by a monk's criticism of her costume at a fundraising event for a temperance society. Iliador's shenanigans continued. In December 1910, the police of Zaritsyn had to intervene when Iliador and his mob tried to shut down a theatre performance they disapproved of. Once more, the Synod tried to dispatch him to another rural posting. Iliador's response was to lock himself in his monastery and surround himself with crowds of acolytes. It took a personal visit from an officer in the Tsar's household staff and Bishop Gemmigian to get him to budge, even temporarily. In a disguise consisting of a big fur hat and dark glasses, he came running back to Tsaritsyn, once more cocooning himself in the monastery, a place now beyond the supervision of the police. They weren't even allowed to enter to investigate the deaths reported in the compound. Relying on friends in the press and at court, Iliador looked on as the Tsar intervened in the proceedings of the Holy Synod to quash actions against the recalcitrant monk. In 1911, came two boat-borne pilgrimages along the Volga, where both Gurmagien and Iliador, accompanied by around 1,700 pilgrims, set ultra-right thugs onto bystanders, called for Russia's Jews to be drowned in the Black Sea, and beset the cathedral of Samara when the local clergy tried to ignore the peddling of hate. By 1912, Iliador had an impressive record of spewing malice, stirring up violence and riding roughshod over every kind of sensibility, remaining all the while unpunished. This should be emphasised. In order to defend a monk who was regarded by even some of his advocates as a lunatic, Nicholas II repeatedly overrode his Prime Minister, the governing organ of the Russian Orthodox Church, and an entire array of other officials, advisers, and institutions. Indeed, it was often these people who found themselves punished once the latest of Iliador's escapades had come to an end. Such was the shock felt by the aged Archbishop of St. Petersburg at the Emperor's intervention in Iliador's punishment. He suffered a fatal stroke. Astonished by Iliador's seeming immunity to consequence, it was widely rumoured that Iliador was the Emperor's illegitimate stepbrother, thus explaining why the Tsar was so reluctant to do anything against him. But Iliador's comeuppance was hastening towards him. A dispute fermented between the firm friends Rasputin and Iliador apparently over Rasputin's refusal to request further funds for Iliador's rampages from the imperial family. In a staggering meeting between Rasputin, Iliador and Bishop Gumagien, Iliador accused the Siberian of a miscellany of misdeeds, including both rape and impotence. Gumagien then tried to thrash Rasputin. With his favourite savagely attacked, Emperor Nicholas refused to intervene when the Synod sentenced Gurmagin and Iliador to exile in rural monasteries. Calling for the mass murder of whole groups of subjects was one thing, 
but laying a finger on the beloved Grisha was quite another. As Rasputin told Nicholas and Alexandra in his typically cloying fashion. Dear Mama and Papa, Iliodor's the devil, an apostate. He's damned. He must have gone mad. He needs a doctor, or else all's lost. The devil will dance to his tune. But Iliodor was still not done, hiding from the police in the home of one Dr. Vadmayev, a quack physician close to the imperial court with expertise in Tibetan herbal medicine. When Badmayev's efforts to appeal to the emperor failed, Iliodor had to accept fate and a swift escort to Vladimir province, where he was locked in a tiny squalid cell with wooden planks for a mattress. Despite a crowd of groupies chanting outside his cell window, his horrendous living conditions Tremendous reversal in fortunes and humiliated ego finally got the better of him. In November 1912, he renounced his orthodox faith, which meant he was stripped of his monastic rank, cast out of a church and set free from his prison. Now once again legally known as Sergei, he slunk back to his father's home on the Don. Here he seems to have thrown aside most of the tenets of the Orthodox faith, choosing to get married without a church wedding. But his restless thoughts were set on revenge. Buying explosives, Trufanov planned to murder 100 governors and bishops in a bomb-throwing campaign that was supposed to be unleashed on the anniversary of the Romanov dynasty in 1913. However, the police got wind of the operation and placed Trufanov under house arrest. Meanwhile, another conspiracy formed, this time against Rasputin, the cause of Trufanov's downfall. Although the exact order of events is unclear, Trufanov seems to have coaxed one of his many female followers to go and kill Rasputin. The woman in question was Hionia Gusieva, whose most notable feature was that she had lost her nose, probably to scrofula, while she was a teenager. By all definitions, Gusieva was also quite, quite mad. On the 28th of June 1914, she approached Rasputin's home in the Siberian village of Poklovskaya. When he approached her to ask her business, Gusieva stabbed the mystic in the stomach before being subdued by a crowd of onlookers. Close to death's door, Rasputin ultimately recovered, and Trufanov knew the jig was most likely up. Disguising himself as a woman and escaping from his house via a secret tunnel, he caught a ferry to Rostov-on-Don, and just in time. The police turned up days later to interrogate him. Dumping his cover and taking time for a photo opportunity with some chummy journalists, Trufanov made his way to Petersburg, where he met up with the most unlikely of allies a coterie of radical socialists clustered around the noted author Maxim Gorky, more famously known as Stalin's favourite writer. Seeking opportunities to undermine the imperial regime, these men hoped that Trufanov would pen a scandalous history about Rasputin and his relationship with the imperial family, thus discrediting the regime. Smuggled out of Russia via Finland, first to Oslo, where Trufanov earned his bread by sweeping a factory floor, 
and then to America, Trufanov released his book to international acclaim, despite efforts by the Tsarist secret police to buy the manuscript from him. He also starred as himself in an American silent film depicting the downfall of the Romanov monarchy. Ironically, the publishers who bought the book were Jewish. This was not the end of Trufanov's time in Russia, however. Soon after the revolution in October 1917, he was back in Russia, setting up an anti-Orthodox religious commune in his old monastery in Tsaritsyn and appealing to the Bolshevik government for support. Trufanov claimed he'd been elected as Russia's spiritual leader and would help the Bolsheviks destroy the Russian Orthodox Church in a church revolution. Such claims were bolstered when Trufanov's spiritual daughter, the noseless Gusieva, attempted to assassinate the head bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church on the steps of a Moscow cathedral on the 12th of July, 1919. Humoured for a time, ultimately Trufanov was disappointed in the lack of support from the Soviet government, once more fleeing Russia in 1922 to live out the rest of his days in obscurity in New York, allegedly as a janitor. He died in 1952, leaving a wife and seven children. Members of Trufanov's sect appear in Soviet sources until 1931. When the Russian right found Trufanov in 1905, they believed they had an ideal weapon in their hands, someone with the correct political views who could use the legitimacy bestowed by his monk's cassock to sway the people and bring the church deeper into the union of the Russian people's orbit. They were correct in one sense. Trufanov did indeed prove popular, using his image of a rough-hewn Cossack peasant who spoke truth to power to sway peasant crowds and highly placed individuals alike. Thousands, even tens of thousands of people, swarmed around Trufanov's monastery, protecting it and him from police invasion and legal responsibility. The fundamental point of his utterly meagre ideology was that everyone apart from the emperor and the Russian peasantry was responsible for Russia's ills and deserved vicious punishment. He thus directed the popular anger felt at the massive problems in Russian society to outside agents, conspicuously lacking much in the way of social and political power. However, in all other ways, the union of the Russian people were horribly mistaken. They could not control Trufanov, who would turn his polemical guns even on them if they didn't give him their wholehearted support. Iliador's conduct and ideas infuriated many in the Russian Orthodox Church, making political cooperation with the union of the Russian people unthinkable and unfeasible. In the end, even Rasputin could not curb Iliador. But there was Iliador's mistake. He was not Rasputin. In public life, Rasputin was fairly subdued, rarely making forays into politics. Rasputin had won the love and favour of the Tsar and Tsarina. Iliador had not. Nicholas put up with Iliador 
because Rasputin asked him to. And when Iliador and Germagen tried, according to some accounts, to castrate Rasputin, the lifeline of the Emperor's support was entirely severed, leaving Iliador to finally face some consequences. It certainly says something dreadful about the Russian Empire in the last decade of its existence, that much of its government could be entangled in the scandals of a delinquent, delirious and dangerous monk. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm-hmm.